You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Good morning, good morning. How are y'all doing? For those that are paying attention, just kidding. Well, it's good to see you guys this morning. For those that are joining online, it's good to see you as well. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Ty Gaston. I serve as the Director of Family and Discipleship Ministries here at Providence. And here at Providence, we are a people formed around a single and compelling vision, and that is to make the gospel unignorable in our city. And it's to that end that we teach the Bible every single week because we believe it's been given to us to know, worship, and obey Jesus. And this morning, we're gonna be continuing a series that we have entitled The Great Eight, where we are learning about the promises of God and how the grace of the gospel intertwines in our everyday life, especially in the midst of trial. And this morning, we're going to be in Romans 8, verses 18 through 22. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there with me. If you do not have one, there should be one located in front of you, underneath one of the seats. And if you don't have a Bible that you can call your own, consider that a gift from us to you. We love nothing more than to gift you with uh, the gift of God's word. And so again, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. If you can and are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Romans 8, 18 through 22 says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you here, and if it's your first time, I want to say thanks so much for making this a part of your week. I want to welcome everybody in person, everybody that's online joining us. Uh, Glad that you are able to join in whatever way possible. Um, This morning, we're continuing our series, like Ty said, uh, entitled The Great Eight, where we've been walking through Romans chapter eight, uh, line by line, verse by verse. And so last week, I joked a little bit, and I said, hey, I gave you the fair warning. We get a real chipper topic. We get to talk about suffering. And I know that's what you woke up excited about. You know, you were just pumped. You're like, let's go to church. You know, let's have a good hearty breakfast and talk about suffering. So that's what we're going to do this morning is to discuss suffering uh, in Romans chapter 8. But all jokes aside, I I think that this topic is not only pertinent because generally our globe is experiencing um, suffering in a very unique way with our, with our global pandemic and some of the, the division and unrest that has resulted from that or maybe just been exacerbated by it. Um, but also, I believe that this topic is pertinent because suffering is a topic that if we don't talk about it, typically we would love to press it down and ultimately avoid or ignore it unless it becomes really acute. And I think that that's a disservice to us because there is so much of the Bible that talks about the spiritual benefit of this topic, why it exists, how we should grapple with it. And I also think that, and we'll get into this a little bit as we go, but I think that the topic of suffering leads to more dysfunction as we don't address it and as we don't answer it the way the Bible does, then almost any other thing can lead to dysfunction. It leads to some really, really bad things. So what I want to pray before we jump in is that the Spirit would help us to do what we're not naturally inclined to do. Namely, just letting us go to the basement floors of our soul that we just try pretend don't exist and let the Lord meet us there um, in, in a unique moment because the Lord does meet us in our suffering. And we're probably all over the, the, in the linear you know, scale of suffering. We're probably all over the map here. But what I know without knowing you is because you're human, this will be relevant. So I don't have to try to be relevant. It is relevant because you're a human being. So let me pray for you, and if you'll bow your heads, pray with me that the Spirit will do what I could never do. Father, we confess to you, it's just just not our inclination to run to that place of suffering and hardship, a place of woundedness. So we just ask, Holy Spirit, would you 
tenderly lead us there so that you might bring us hope in the midst of hopelessness. Even if it's not acute, Lord, if it's not happening right now, very present, the suffering, Lord, whether it's past or fear of future suffering, would you help, Lord, to minister to us? Give us a hope for the future that is so much more solid than the hopes that are offered by the world. Reveal to our hearts that our future is secure because you've already started something in us, something beautiful, something glorious. Remind us of that today. And for my friends that might be under the sound of my voice that have yet to submit themselves to you, Jesus, as king and as savior, would you draw them in that you are a God of all comfort? There's no one like you, Jesus. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. All right. So why do I say it might be one of the more important topics for us to cover? It's not just cultural, although I do want to get into that. I think we all find ourselves at some point asking, especially if you're a Christian, how do we walk the way of Jesus when our way is blurred by the tears in our eyes? How do we know where to go where you're, when our minds are fogged by the difficulty and confusion that comes with suffering? It's difficult to do when you don't have all of the answers, you don't have the understanding. And I think what we need more today in the church than at any other time is a recommitment to just classical bare bones Christianity. It's what, it's what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity. I think we need that so much more than anything else. And the reason is because I think we've created, and I say we, I mean our time, our place, our unique moment, the church, we've created this kind of two-tiered class system in the church. And what I mean by that, I think you'll understand what I mean when I explain it. On one tier, you have like the super Christians, right? They're the ones that are always attending church. They always give. They're always served. They're always on the meal train before you even knew a meal train was out. You know, they're always at home group. They always say the right things. They always do that. Their kids like are obedient and stuff. And you're just like, they just seem, they got a knack for this Christianity thing. And then there's the rest of us who are just basically like your low-level grunt Christian that's just trying to exist. We're just trying to make it by. Like we just want to make it into the nosebleed seats of heaven and we'll be fine. I don't care if it's a tough seat. Like my neck is craning because there's a pipe right here at the top of the stadium of heaven. As long as I'm in, I'm good for that, right? And we have these two tiers of Christianity. The problem with that is Romans 8 completely demolishes that system. Romans 8 says that is complete garbage. There is no tiered system. Because the spirit of God dwells in you, you now are Christ's and there's no inner room that you're not invited to. There's no holy of holies that like, you know, you think like you're tiny Tim on the outside looking and you just wish you could be in that Thanksgiving dinner with all the super Christians. That's not a thing. And nothing underscores the problem with living in that two-tier system like the topic of suffering. I'll tell you what I mean. We exist in a space that's so very comfortable in a society that does everything human, humanly possible to the point of like abandoning morality. We'll do anything to keep us comfortable. Now, I want you to think some of this is okay. Some of this is good stuff. Like, so modern medicine, that's a good thing. Makes us more comfortable, right? Like, like moms in the room, if you, you know, you didn't have a natural birth, you had an epidural, glory be to God for that. Okay. And I thank God for you. Okay. That's awesome. Modern transportation methods, that's a good deal. You know, you think about like, remember the Oregon Trail when we were kids playing that game? That would be miserable. Agreed that cars are kind of cool, planes, the internet, that's nice. You know, like you could just, you want to know like who won the 1984 Super Bowl? No problem. Like you can just look it up. Here's another one that I just, we talked about this in the nine. I feel I'd be remiss. Air conditioning. Glory to God for air conditioning, right? Could you imagine Houston without it? I don't want to, like, it's awful, it's miserable. Now, having said that, there's other things that are, like, morally reprehensible that come with this, like, idol of comfort. You know, we'll do almost anything to be comfortable, so what does that mean? Sometimes human beings will drug themselves into oblivion because they want to be, uh, you know, sedated from the suffering of the world, but what does that create? Well, it creates this worldwide system of drug trafficking that actually destroys tons of lives, right? So it's like, but we're okay with it because in the end, we just want to distance ourselves from the hardship and the pain and the hurt, and there's all this mixed up mess that's in the middle of it. 
And I can go on and on and on about the things that we might do to keep, keep ourselves comfortable that are actually just terrible. And listen, all these things can be viewed through a number of lenses, but my point is saying that we overall, with a broad brush, uh, we just want these comfortable conveniences that will help alleviate what is inevitable about living a life in this fallen world, which is that there is suffering and hardship at every turn. And listen, this is really important. I think the church has been influenced in this way more than we could ever imagine. And I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you examples. I want to say I'm an equal opportunity offender. I place, I'm going to make fun of ourselves. Okay. It's better when we do this. So nobody feels offended. We're all involved with this. Okay. So the church, I'm going to make fun of us. The goal of church planning and church life becomes creating these comfortable, convenient spaces, at least in the West, in America, that are the least invasive possible, right? So we just want to release the tension for everyone, or at least don't create worse tension in your life, and we'll do everything that we can to help with that. I'll give you examples of what I mean. Think about children's ministry. Now, I know we're in COVID. It's not the same, but I, you know, let's hearken to the glory days. You'd walk in. And you got your kids, and what are, you, what are you thinking? There better not be any lines. I don't want any lines. I won't be waiting in the foyer with my coffee. You know, I want to get there, and I don't want any hiccups, no registration issues. I want them to type my name in, and this, it shoots out a sticker that slaps on my kid's chest, and they just kind of, ah, they float into the children's ministry. It needs to be quick. I don't have time for this. All the safety precautions, they need to be perfect. The classrooms need to be pristine. I don't want teachers to get tired or angry at my kids. And listen, if my kids are unruly, check this out. No problem. Literally, we, might, we will buzz you with like a restaurant buzzer. It's not going to offend anybody. You're just going to feel a buzz so you can go out and deal with your crazy child. Right? No problem. You don't have to feel the shame of somebody coming in and being like, your kid's out of hand. No problem. Just buzz you. It's awesome. Kids are taught the truths of scripture. They get a nice craft that is Instagrammable. And they get fed like healthy, allergy-free, GMO-free, organic, you know, I don't know, plums, something, insecticide-free. It's awesome. There's no problems with this. You know, we've gone to the nth degree. They're going to play in like a ball pit or a playground that looks like Discovery Zone or Chuck E. Cheese. When I was a kid, that's now their church playground. You know, it's unbelievable. They get in like a spaceship, a Jesus spaceship. And then they come back, floating back to you after church, and they're just begging you to come back. You know, that's what we expect. And if we don't get that, like we will, like an ecclesiological buffet, we'll find the churches that'll do it, that'll allocate their budgets for this, right? And listen, adults, we can like rip on our kids or we could think, then there's us. Like we come to church and we're served artisan coffee, the pour over style, you know? Not, not that Folgers garbage, the real stuff. with creamer and bald waters and snacks for us. We worship in cushy seats and like, think about this. The mood lighting comes in so you don't have to feel awkward about it. It's like, hey, nobody has to see you worship because we'll make it dark. It's just you and the Lord Jesus, you know? Brennan will play the right amount of fast songs and slow songs. The lighting, if it's creative enough, might even like change with those songs. He'll play the right notes, say the right thing. Some that have the budget for it, there might even be fog that is the spirit. It's weaving its way into the congregation, right? Making you feel less awkward about the fact that you're singing to an invisible presence, the sound system is procured just right for us. It's not too loud. It's like the three little bears. You know, it's not too loud. It's not too quiet. It's just right, right in the middle. You're always going to have some that are angry about it, but nonetheless, we've pleased the most. Check it out. You don't even have to bring your Bible. We will put it on a massive TV screen. And in case you were too blind to see that, we brought a Bible for you. It's incredible. You see this ethic even come out in sermons, which is even more sad. Harder topics get generally avoided because those can be too divisive. So for the most part, preachers just become like motivational speakers, you know? It's like, just want to make you feel good, baby. I'm just going to give you a pep talk in Jesus' name. And uh, we just reference the Bible basically to justify the weird religious nonsensical things that we're doing that wouldn't make, wouldn't make any sense to us unless we had the Bible. But other than that... You know, I've heard one, one uh, comedian say, you know, the Bible is like the national anthem. Like we read it and they're like, listen, close that up, put it away. You'll never have to hear from that again, right? Because ultimately it's just a pep talk. And here's the thing. The two tiers that we have created really just serve this purpose. 
So tier A is just to keep the monster going with all their faithful service and everything. And then the other tier is just the people that are so beat up, they just are trying their best to maybe get in and be a part of that. But then when they can't handle it, then they're like shamefully like pseudo attenders or whatever it may be. And they just kind of don't want to hang out because they used to be a part of the system and the complex, but now they're not. And so you have these two systems and it's just so devastating. And the reason is because our own personal hell becomes an uncomfortable existence, even in the church. Like, more than anything that we're afraid of, we're just afraid of being uncomfortable. So we tailor everything to avoid it at all costs. And listen, I want to make mention, I think it's good to make a caveat. That's not all bad, right? So, like, the scriptures actually say we have a God of all comfort. Second Corinthians tells us this. Some of this is hospitality, which is a Christian virtue. It's a Christian fruit. This is why we do these things. That's why I said we'll pick on ourselves. Like, it's not like we're going to stop bringing Bibles. I think that's hospitable. I don't think we're going to stop putting the words up on the screen. I think that's helpful. I think it's actually Christian charity. But what I'm pointing out is the problem comes when the church starts to try and have a vision or a place of comfort without Christ. The church becomes not an outpost of God's kingdom that's advancing in the world. It becomes this overrun, understaffed field hospital for wounded people. And listen, I want to say that's that's good. Like part of being an outpost for the kingdom is ministering to wounded people. But if we ignore the reason that we need comfort and sewing up in the first place, namely doctrines like suffering, doctrines like sin, because those are going to make people uncomfortable, Well, that can be detrimental because check it out. What happens? It's like soldiers who come in wounded to the hospital tent and we're unsure to tell them why we're fighting in the first place. And we don't even know what to tell them about whether or not they're actually going to win the fight at all. So they're just kind of like, well, why am I taking shrapnel? Paul's going to get into this, by the way. Like, well, is it worth it? And if we don't have Christ, what do we have to say that, that the suffering that we are experiencing is worth it? Of course, this makes sense, though, if we really are at all critical of our culture. If we have any critical thinking, we'd say, yeah, that makes sense that we'd be influenced this way because our culture wants a kingdom, but they don't want a king. They want the Garden of Eden, but they don't want God. They have this weird perversion of Genesis chapter 1 without Genesis chapter 3. So they have Genesis chapter 1 without God. Everything just so happened to be good. Everything just so happened to be great. Everything just so happened to be awesome. And there's no Genesis 3. We don't really know why it's gone wrong, but because we're just going to have the right policies in place to basically make it a utopia. And the problem with that is this kind of idealism always leads to a version of utopia that eventually someone looks at you and says, you're going to have this utopia whether you like it or not. And it's their version of utopia, right? (laughs) It doesn't have to be yours. On the flip side, you could have the cynicism. I've seen this creep into the church. It even creeps into Christians' hearts. It's like Genesis 3 without Genesis 1. I'm looking at all the Calvinists in the room, all right? You know what I'm talking about. It's like where the Bible starts with original sin. There's no part about God saying it's very good, <laughs> you know? And listen, I could pick on people, all right? It's where we just say, you know what? We're reprobates. That's it. There's no like we had a good God who created us and loved us and created us in his image. It's like that's not where it starts. It all starts with you being broken, Genesis 3 without Genesis 1 creates pessimism because it, gives, it leads you to this stodgy, painful existence where life's joys are basically just diluted by the inevitable suffering that awaits you. Now, here's the thing. You don't even have to know any theology to, it, to kind of jive with this, right? It's like this. If you've really suffered, then when good things happen, you probably are, you might be thinking, hmm, it's good now, but just wait, it can get worse. You ever had that happen to you? If you've had something really bad happen to you, I imagine you have. You think, man, you know what? Even whenever things are sweet, bitter is on its way. When's the next shoe going to drop? And the cynic is never proved wrong because in a world that's fallen, the shoe is going to drop. And so you get Genesis 3 without Genesis 1. But Paul has something else entirely for us. He says, in Christ, we don't have to fall into cynical pessimism about life. And we don't have to buy the cultural lie of idealistic optimism but instead we can have a hopeful realism that's rooted in truth. We can have reality and hope. He gives us a totally different way of dealing with the nastiness of human hardship. And here's the thing. This is what I love about Paul and why I think that uniquely Paul can speak to this is Paul's a guy that has suffered greatly. Maybe it's just me, but you probably can resonate with me. Doesn't it feel... I'm trying to think of a way to say this euphemistically. 
Doesn't it feel grimy when someone tries to give you the chin-up speech, but they haven't really suffered that much? You know what I'm talking about? It's like they're ready to quote Romans 8.28 to you, but they're having a pretty nice life. And even if it's all true, you can't help but kind of like, there's a small part of your heart that just is picturing your fist in their jaw. Is it just me? Like that's the darkness of my soul? Let me put it a different way. It's the married couple that's been married for, let's say 15, 20, 30 years, and the newlywed couple that come into the darker parts of your marriage holding hands, be like, uh, why don't you serve one another? Like Christ. And you know that's true, right? So deep down you're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's true. <laughs> but if you've been married for like 15, 20, 30 years, you're also thinking, I can't wait until I get to be there when these tables turn, baby, you know? And you get to taste this medicine that you're handing, you know? You get to eat the lemons, rind and all that I'm serving later on. Because why? Because there's a part of us, I think, you need to know you can trust someone. Like for me, and I'm just opening up with my darker heart, I need to know that someone has a little few scars before they talk to me about suffering. I just, it's important, kind of. Now, hear me on this. People can have scars and still have no good wisdom on suffering because just because you've been through something doesn't mean you know how to handle it. But I love having someone that has coupled the, the truths of Christ with scars that prove it. It's like someone who's been trained in boot camp and actually in war. Or I always think of the famous Mike Tyson quote where they talked to him about, you know, the plans and what's his strategy and about fighting. And you know his famous quote is, is, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. That's what he said about boxing. Because <laughs> you can have a fight camp for eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, punch a man in the face. The whole camp is gone. And now you're just in the middle of, that's what suffering's like. It's like you can have a really good theology of suffering and then get punched in the face. And now you're like, you're like searching for your glasses to read Romans 8.28 because you can't see. So I love Paul for this reason because Paul has suffered. He's got a whole chapter in 2 Corinthians 12 that tells us about it. He says, I'm a fool for telling you this, but you have all these other guys that are boasting that I might as well boast to you too. He says, these guys have never suffered like me. And he starts going down a litany of things. And Paul's suffering is not like our suffering. You know, I joked with the 9 a.m. You know, our suffering is like, I don't like past the peace because I have to shake people's hands. I don't know. <laughs> Paul's suffering is like, I was shipwrecked three times adrift at sea. I got my own kinsmen, the Jewish people that hate me and form mobs to kill me. I got the Gentiles that they hate me too and they want to have riots to kill me. I had to be let down over a wall in a basket because there were people trying to break in my room at night to kill me. At one point, Paul goes into a town, he preaches, they drag him out of town, they stone him what they think is to death. So they leave him there for dead. The disciples come back and it says, I kid you not in the book of Acts, it says that Paul wakes up and says, and they went to the next town so that Paul could preach some more. This guy has suffered. It's like sometimes I feel under-encouraged as a pastor, you know? So poor, pitiful me. Like, oh man, nobody said my sermon was good. <laughs> Paul's never gotten a good email, ever. It's like he always is preaching and it's like power of God shows up and then people are mad at him about it. It's like, that stinks. You never have a good Sunday. He's hurt. In fact, in the very calling of Paul in the book of Acts, Jesus says, I want to show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. See, we only focus on the fact that Jesus said he'll be my instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. We miss the back half where he says, I want to show him how bad it's gonna be. Now, you might be like, Court, this is so dark. It's so important because to tell someone that to follow Jesus, you do not have to suffer is to completely rip out most of the scripture. Paul says here in verse 17, before you get to verse 18, he says that we're heirs, right? We're heirs of God and we're heirs with Christ. But what? Provided that we suffer. It's a given Paul knows something here innately that the early church, I, thought, I think, knew innately, which is, yes, because we're human beings, we're going to suffer. But there's a unique suffering that comes along with following Jesus that's just a provided given for us. And Paul's going to talk to us about why it's worth it. He's going to give us some theological explanations. He's going to give us some hope. And I think Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18, is one of the more powerful expositions of why Christians can be missional and be evangelistic in the, worst, in the worst circumstances and actually why 
history proves when it's worst, Christians are at their best. How? One historian put it this way, the blood of the martyrs were the seeds of revival for the church. How? Like that's how you snuff stuff out. That's not how you grow stuff, right? That's not the history of the early church. Okay. So let's start in verse 18. Actually, I'm gonna start in verse 19. Do a little Quentin Tarantino with you. We'll come back to 18. For the creation waits, verse 19, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Listen to some of these words about what Paul believes about creation. Pains of childbirth is what creation's under. Longing, groaning, yearning. These words that Paul's invoking here are not easy words. I am not a woman. I have not gone through childbirth. I am under the impression that it is not easy. It's not flowery. It's not like going to the theater, you know? Like sometimes we can go to the theater, we watch a horror movie and it's like, ooh, it's tantalizing unless you were there, you know? It's like you can go watch a mobster movie. That's different than a mobster showing up to your house, right? So it's kind of like reading pains of childbirth. And then ladies, I know for those of you who have given birth, it's like that's different reading than doing. Paul's saying that's what it's like to suffer in the creation is going through this kind of futility, this suffering. Elizabeth Elliot, uh, if you don't know who that is, Elizabeth Elliot is the wife of missionary Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was a, I think, early 20s man who came to know Christ powerfully, flew with his friend Nate Saint and wanted to bring the gospel to the Aka Indians, a tribe who had never heard the gospel before. And he gave his life, martyred for the faith, and his wife was widowed, Elizabeth Elliot. She had suffered. She, we can, I only give you their story, not only because it's, in, it's encouraging what they, what they went through and what they had the fortitude to endure, but also because once again, I like people with scars telling you about suffering and she has them. So here's what she says. She defines suffering as the presence of something in your life that you don't want or the lacking of the presence of something in your life that you do want. The reason I like that is because it's broad enough to encompass all of it. And I think that it hits all of us in the room right now because some of us might just think, well, you're only suffering if you're sick. And I think sick is an acute way of suffering but it's not the only way. See, sometimes there's things, people, circumstances that are in your life that are absolutely eating at you and you wish it would just go away. Sometimes it's you are suffering because of sinful habits that you have and you're being buffeted all the time by this thing. Wish it would go. Other times there's something missing and you just wish it were there. It could be an it, it could be a person, but the lack of this hurts and it causes you to suffer. And when we suffer, this is key. We typically ask ourselves three questions. Number one, who is to blame? Number two, who will pay for it? Number three, who do I run to for justice? Number one, who is to blame? Number two, who will pay? Number three, who do I run to for justice and comfort? You get this with your kids all the time, right? Kids, especially toddlers. They want somebody to blame. Somebody's got to pay. That's why they're tattletales. (laughs) They appeal to you. We need a perpetrator. We need atonement. And we need understanding, comfort, and justice. We need these things. And listen, I could camp out here for like six weeks. I could do six weeks on what I just said. And just each, because this is important. In all my years of ministry and working with people, answering these questions wrongly has created, in my experience, created more dysfunction, more heartache, more turmoil in people's lives than any other thing. You might think I'm wrong about this, but I I really believe when people answer the suffering question wrongly, there's so much fruit in their lives they don't even know exists because the people who are going to pay if you blame the wrong person are the ones you love the most who have no reason paying for it. You ever wonder why you have dysfunction in your marriage and you end up punishing your spouse for the things they never did? It's because you got the wrong answer for who's to blame. So you punish somebody and that ends up being somebody who you think can take the blow. You notice we never, we never like typically punish the people that we don't know all that well because the relationship can't take the strain. Your spouse is the one who gets punished, right? And I could spend tons of time here, but I digress because I can't. (laughs) What does Paul say about suffering? Well, he's doing something here that I think is important. He says, suffering is not just personal, suffering's cosmic. 
the whole creation is under futility. Not just you and me. Everything. It's under the pains of childbirth. Now, I want to define futility. What's futility? It's this like treadmill of life, full of sweat, full of thorns and thistles, without fulfillment, no consummation, no peace. You know, futility is why we work so hard but enjoy so little. It's why we can accomplish such great things but then feel such big voids afterwards in our lives. Futility is why the real thing is rarely as good as the desire. You know what I mean about vacation? And I'm not saying vacation can't be fun. In fact, sometimes it's amazing. You ever wonder why it's never perfect though? In your mind, it's perfect. Parents that take their kids to Disney, perfect. When you're thinking about it and then you get there and you're like, oh, it's not a castle, you know? (laughs) At least not in the way that I wanted it to be. And here's what the Bible says. Now you gotta perk your ears up for this because this is unpopular and yet it is the most freeing thing you'll ever hear. Why is creation subjected to futility? The Bible says, because God subjected it to futility. Now I know that's unpopular because the very next question is gonna say, wait a minute, God is the reason it's subjected to futility? I can't jive with that. You're saying God's responsible for the most horrid things in the universe? And here's why I wanna pause for a second because... This is where you're, you're running the risk of playing the blame game wrongly. Consider for a moment, is God responsible for suffering, hardship, and the worst possible things in the universe? Well, he might be responsible for those things in the same way that a judge is responsible for rendering a verdict on a murderer that sends them to prison. So God's responsible for the imprisonment like the judge is responsible for the imprisonment, Right? But it would be wrong for us to say that God's responsible for all of this mess in the same way that we are or the same way that the murderer is. Another way to put it would be God justly delivered the verdict to our first parents. Yes, but no, God is not responsible for the penalty that they bore any more than a judge is responsible for the imprisonment. And listen, this is an easy like, what are we talking about here? We're talking about maybe one of the most important questions of all of life, and we're talking about it in about 10 minutes. So here's what I want to say. We can wrestle here. We ought to wrestle here. Every Christian should. But I want to tell you this unequivocally because it's what I see in the scripture. There is no path to true peace, joy, and hope, and love without a sovereign God. No way. You can't have it. And here's why. Any understanding of the world that makes God this incapable force sitting on the outside of our lives, and he just wish he could fix it, but he can't, renders not only us without hope of ever seeing an alleviation of suffering, it renders our God incapable of ever fixing the problems. And that is a very dark place to be. We need a God who's, hey, up to the task. (laughs) Here's the good news of the Bible. He's got it. Like, he's kind of better at running this thing than you and me. In fact, I would venture to say, without spending too much time on it, so maybe the reason that things are a little bit messed up is because we tried to, uh, we didn't you know, take Carrie Underwood's advice with the whole Jesus take the wheel and let it stay. <laughs> you get it? So what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, um, listen, you and I are perpetrators. God's just, but remember the gospel is a lesson that God is not only just because if he was only just, you and I would have nothing to sing about. He's also gracious. Or as John says, when he writes about Jesus entering into human history, he says, through Moses, we got the law, but through Jesus Christ, we got grace and truth. Okay, so that's the answer for why suffering exists, but it still doesn't tell us why we should care about this answer. And this answer is not just true. I want you to key in here on verse 20. In particular, two words. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. It wasn't the plan, at least not in one sense. But because of him who subjected it, God, what are the next two words? In hope. Genesis 3, God subjects creation to futility because of sin, but he does so with a seed of hope. We get this seed of hope laid in the curse that's placed on Eve, where he says, it's the seed of a woman who will crush the head of the serpent. What is in futility now, what is in bondage to corruption now, will be arrested and redeemed. That's the seed of hope. Or as Paul says it, listen to verse 21. 
the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain, this is the hope, if you're writing this in the notes, this is the hope, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's the hope. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. What does that mean? Well, let's talk about suffering briefly in three major ways that it comes about. Number one, we suffer when we act in a way that leads to suffering that has developed from consequences. So this is a for instance, but like you got a four-year-old, no cookies, eats cookies, time out. That would be suffering for consequences of own volitional action, right? That's a pretty simple one. We could take that to the nth degree though and to the worst possible ways. You just get the consequences of personal volitional will. B, sometimes we suffer because other people act upon us with their will and we did nothing wrong. Isn't that the worst Okay, this is why we have a justice system, right? If one of us walks out to our car and in a moment we find out that someone broke the window, you're like, what, why? You know, you're just frustrated. You know, maybe like a Christian curse word comes out or whatever it may be. You're like, you know, what the heck? Maybe that's it. <laughs> it's PG enough, right? Hopefully. And what do you want? You want to figure out like, this isn't fair. I'm in there worshiping. I'm like doing my thing, the right thing. And then this happens. That's the second way that we might suffer. So we need some justice. Or C, and this is the one that always gets us because, man, this one's a struggle. A person is subjected to unintentional harm or hardship as a consequence of something that is completely outside of their control and outside of anyone's control. This is something like you get the diagnosis and you're looking around for who to blame. And there's no one in the room. Now that one's tough. In Christian history, we have been given answers to this. How do Christians handle this? Well, here's they, here is what they are. And they all are rooted back in the hope or the seed of hope in the gospel. Number one, when it's us that have been the perpetrators, we are the ones who have enacted the wrong thing and received the harsh consequences. We repent in humility and we receive forgiveness from Jesus. This is why we can have freedom even if you're in jail because you're receiving the suffering consequences of sin, and yet you have an eternal freedom in Christ that you won't pay the penalty for that. That's great news. It's why the gospel is a powerful message in the prisons. Okay, what about number two? Well, number two, and only a Christian doctrine has this, is we can confront in charity and in truth for reconciliation, especially in the church. This is why Paul has such a just an angry disposition towards lawsuits in the church. He's like, why don't you just work it out? <laughs> well, without the gospel, you can't just work it out. Why? Because once again, second question, who's going to pay? But it, Christians, we already have the answer. Christ paid. So what you should have is if you're wronged, Christians should be tripping over themselves to make restitution. Why? Because Christ paid for us. So if I'm the one who wronged you and you come to me and they're like, you wronged me. I'm like, oh man, I'm so, how do I make it right? First of all, forgive me. Thanks be to God that Christ has paid the penalty for me, but how do I make it right? And then you have number three and the church has a unique way of handling this too. And it goes all the way back to the earliest days, our ancient forefathers in the Psalms, like 65, 70% of your Psalms are what are called laments. Laments are ways where we cry out to God in hope and sorrow. We cry and say, God, it's unjust. It's not right. There's no one to appeal to here. There's no authority that can make it right. Why is it happening? And we ask God to change it. But our hope is ultimately in the king's eventual future that he has for us. Because we know that on this side of things, we're gonna have these moments. Okay, I could spend a lot of time here, but I'm, I am time short. One thing I did want to mention, though, is that our culture basically wants to meld everything into number two for us. What do I mean? Our culture wants to say, no one's personally responsible for anything. We're all just victims of some sort. So they just want to basically look at the world, and nobody wants to say, I'm the reason that there's some hardship, suffering, oppression. Basically, it's somebody else's fault. The problem is, it's a, like, it's a big game of clue, like, who done it? Who are you pointing at? Because if no one did it, then who is going to make restitution? Of course, this is just not shocking because we've just abandoned the Christian worldview altogether, mostly as a society. But here's what Paul's after. Here's kind of his linear thinking. So just a few bullet points before we jump to the end. Paul's saying all creation, including humans, are under the bondage of futility. God wove hope into the futility by promising Christ. And 
when he frees the Christian at a soul level, when he, Jesus was bound and he faced corruption so that we could be freed and uncorrupted. There's no more bondage, but God's only son looks to new brothers and sisters and welcomes us in. We're no longer in bondage. And Paul says that all of creation, think of all the animals, all of creation has been longing for this day where we'd be freed. Like one commentator says, creation is on their tippy toes, just trying to see over the fence into the glorious thing that is the church. And check this out, sons and daughters of God that have been freed by the gospel refuse to enact despicable things on one another. And that is the most profound way that human history has changed in the context of suffering. I want to say this, and I think it's 100% true. There is nothing in the world that can alleviate human suffering and injustice as effectively as sharing the gospel with another person. The reason for that is because you cannot put out the flame that is inside the human heart without the gospel. And that flame will burn people, both individually and interpersonally. But the gospel puts the flame out and replaces that with a heart of flesh that feels, has empathy, has compassion, has love, and changes the world. Christ's resurrection is the only sufficient antidote to the pain and sorrow of human suffering. We can't offer anything to the injustice of the world more powerful than the gospel. It's what we have. Which is why when I started this, I said, when we have the two-tiered system and all we're offering is comfort without Christ, we are ultimately offering a phony fiat currency. We're offering uh, counterfeit money. We're saying this has value and it has no value. All it is, it's like someone with a gunshot wound and you hand them some Neosporin. It's like, it feels good, I guess. You're like, oh, it'll work, don't worry. Here's some water. The gospel heals us. Okay, now, most powerful point of this entire section, my, one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible, told you I'd Quentin Tarantino you, this is Paul's scandalous question. A scandalous question that he has asked himself that I'm sure you have asked yourself and we're unwilling to say that because we're in church, but hey, you don't have to lie. Paul says in verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. In other words, Paul is saying, I've considered, is it worth it to follow Jesus? He's considered it. And here's the thing. I don't even begrudge him. I think I would too, if I were Paul. It's like an angel shows up and says, hey, I've called you. You're like, awesome. I've called you to hurt. I'm like, eh. you want to spin the wheel of fortune again, don't you? He says, I've considered it. Is it worth it to follow Jesus? Like if there's already a helping of suffering that have been pushed onto my plate and shoved my way, uh, is it really worth it to have another full helping? And here's his conclusion. He says, it's not even worth comparing the suffering I've gone through when I weigh it on the scales alongside the glory that is going to be revealed to us. In another chapter, he says it like this, you and I, it has not even entered into the mind of man the glory of what God has prepared for you and me. It's unfathomable. I want you to think of the most horrendous experience you've ever had and think that Paul's saying on the other end of that scale, it's not even close to the joy, infinite, and glory that is awaiting us. Now that is so helpful, isn't it? It is for me. Thank God it's worth it. And I couldn't help myself. I know that I said at the beginning of this sermon series that there's no commands in here, but I couldn't help myself but bring out and try to tease out like some, what do you do with this? What do you do with that kind of word? Well, first, I think we reject self-pity. We reject self-trust. We don't lean onto our own understanding and we hope in the glory of God. Paul is saying here that it's the glory that we should be looking at. Like it's the weight of glory as C.S. Lewis said. Two things the Bible says about glory. One, we're going to get into this in Romans chapter eight, verse 28. We'll do a whole sermon on it. Okay, I know you expected that. It's on your coffee mugs. And this is the glory, that one day we will see Jesus face to face. And for you and for me, we will see the entire landscape of human history and we will be blown away. We will say it could never have happened any other way. All the tears, all the laughter, all the bloodshed, all of the weeping, all the laughter, all the rejoicing, all of the days of mourning, all the funerals, all the weddings. It couldn't have happened any other way. God, you are so wise. 
That's what we'll say. That's the glory of God. We will say, I was just in my human mind such a fool. Or like Job, we'll say, I have heard about you with my ears, but now I've seen you with my eyes. I close my mouth. (laughs) I have nothing to say. The wisdom of God is going to be revealed to us one day, and we're going to go, wow. And and, and just as a side note to this, that is the the biggest side note in the world, and your suffering is going to be a part of it. Like, your suffering is going to matter. Like, right now, you're probably thinking, there's so much senseless suffering in the world. I defy that. That is not a thing. There is no senseless suffering in a world that's ruled by King Jesus. There's only suffering that will lead to glory. Okay, then there's a second part. And the second part is what C.S. Lewis talks about in his weight of glory. And that is that there's a glory that Jesus shares with us. This is so weird. It's so almost like theoretical. It's hard to even talk about. Christ in his glory shares that glory with us by making us into his image. So I want to leave you with a thought. There's a quote by a guy named Edward Murrow. He was a CNN correspondent in like the early, I think like, He's he's an American journalist, I think, in like the 1920s or something. Could be wrong about where he worked, but he said, uh, in more of like a patriotic talk, he said, you are not descended from fearful men. And he's talking to the American people, basically, to give them courage. And it made me think about not patriotism, but our spiritual heritage. Hebrews 11 does this for us, and I want to do this too. Your spiritual heritage, if you're suffering in Christ is not a smarmy, pitiful, shrinking away as the pains of life wash over you. That is not who you are. And I want to remind you as children of God of your heritage because I do think that this is what we ought to lean into. Your spiritual heritage is the boldness of Paul the Apostle as he faced down the accusers of the Roman Empire all the way to his death. Your spiritual heritage is the strength of King David that defied the oppression of Goliath as a small boy and he withstood the horde of the Philistines. The, convic- the conviction of Ezra to call Israel to repentance and to return from the exile. The courage of Daniel to walk into the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to walk into the fiery furnace knowing that a fourth person would show up who looked like the son of man. We have as our mothers, Esther, who endured captivity, faced ethnic annihilation, and with poise walked into the king's palace to advocate. We have as our mother, Ruth, widowed Ruth, who faced famine, loss of her entire family while she hoped in God for a different future. Sarah, who cynically laughed that God would make her a mom, only to laugh in tears as she weaned the patriarch of Israel. We have as our fathers, Joseph, who bore the slavery of Egypt, the lashes of imprisonment, the scorn of false accusation, only to rise to the side of Pharaoh, save thousands of lives. We have Moses who delivered the children of Israel, enduring 40 years of wilderness struggle to gaze upon the promised land from a distance. And for God to say, his eyes had not yet dimmed, but I'll put him to sleep. God himself buried Moses. We have Peter as our father. We do not remember Peter, the denier of the Lord Jesus. We remember Peter standing up amongst the 12 in courage as he was being threatened for death and proclaiming that Christ is risen. And he proclaimed this all the way to being crucified upside down. All of these are imperfect and broken men and women, deep victims of suffering. And check this out. Some of them perpetrators too at times. But I want to encourage you to embrace the spiritual heritage because it's in them that we see a glimpse of our elder brother, Jesus. Everything we love about the heroes really tell us more about God. That's why we love them is because they give us a glimpse of Jesus. And I want you to hear this. Paul is saying that what should give us great courage in the face of suffering is that God's about the business of making you look like Jesus the amalgam of all of the spiritual heroes at their best with none of the downsides. That's what he's making you to be. Or as C.S. Lewis said, if we really saw each other with spiritual eyes, we would be tempted to fall down and worship because we would look so glorious. That may sound blasphemous, but Paul the apostle shows up to the towns with his brother Barnabas and all of them start worshiping because of the power these men walked in. And they break him up and say, don't worship me just a guy, but that's the glory that we're headed towards. 
but our elder brother Jesus, no man or woman has ever suffered like he suffered. And yet without a word, he was led to die. Listen to me, there is no faith in the world that has God entering into human suffering and drinking the cup dry, suffering like no human has ever suffered. That's why Christianity is not only true, but powerfully true. Is because our God did not only say, hey, I'll fix the suffering. He said, I'll bear it. I'll suffer in your place. I'll do it. Everything good we see in the spiritual heroes is perfected in the God-man Jesus. You remember the three questions? Who do we blame? Who's gonna pay? Where do we run? Jesus wasn't to blame and he takes the blame. Jesus is not responsible and he pays the price. And he rises again and right when he has every right to say, I'm gonna exact justice on all these people who hurt me. You know what he says? Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Run to me. I'm the comfort. I'm the place. I am where you can find hope when you suffer. And when you suffer, you'll know me more because you'll know what it's like. And I'll comfort you in your suffering. See, Paul tells us to take upon this consideration our current sufferings, but don't just consider your sufferings. Consider the glorious reward that awaits us. That's where we're headed, guys. God is making us look like Jesus. And so I don't have anything except this as an encouragement this morning. If you're suffering, you have Jesus and you can hope in him. And if you're not suffering, I want to celebrate with you. I don't just want to weep with those who weep. I want to rejoice with those who rejoice. If you've got, like, if it's a good day and you're like, man, why are you Debbie downering me? I want to rejoice with you. But here's what else I would encourage you to do. Go remind someone who suffers the truth about Jesus. Remind them of where they're headed. Because when we hurt, it's not even worth comparing. It's an unworthy exercise. The eternal weight of glory awaits us. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray. Father, for my friends, whether they're online or whether they're in person, that they are suffering right now. I ask, would you remind them that you have bottled every tear and that no ounce of their suffering will be wasted? That just as your suffering led to life, our suffering will lead to life. Would you strengthen the feeble knees, Lord Jesus? Straighten our back. Give us the courage of our spiritual heritage that not only are we gonna make it through stumbling together, but we're gonna make a dent in the kingdom of darkness because the church stands and shines brightly, God, when we suffer with you. And for my friends that aren't suffering right now, God, just give them someone to pour out joy into send someone their way that they can speak life into and help us in everything that we do. Let it all be to the glory of the name of Jesus. We trust you, God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.